Welcome to the Skeptic's Guide to Emergency Medicine. Meet him, greet him, treat him, and street him. Today's date is July 25th, 2019, and I am your skeptical host, Ken Milne. The title of today's podcast is Please Stop Prescribing Antibiotics for Viral Acute Respiratory Infections. And our guest skeptic is Dr. Chris Bond. Chris is an emergency medicine physician and clinical lecturer in Calgary. He's also an avid FOMED supporter and producer on various online outlets, including The Skeptic's Guide. Welcome back to the SGM, Chris. Thanks very much, Ken. You're sounding very Steve Perry-like today. Oh, that was very kind of you. But did you know that I originally wanted to drift out of the 80s and slip into one of my favorite of all time 1990 albums? And remember, that's a 12-inch disc made out of vinyl. Actually, it was on a CD. But... Alanis Morissette, Jagged Little Pill. I wanted to use ironic for this one because I was going to say, isn't it ironic, don't you think, that you're prescribing antibiotics for an acute viral infection? However, our special guest skeptics, which you're going to meet shortly, suggested that song by Journey, Don't Stop Believing. But in this case, please stop prescribing. But enough about my attempts to sing and pick music. Chris, you're always going on excellent adventures. I am sure you've been traveling the world in the last three months. You know it, man. I just completed a circumnavigation of the globe trip. So I went Calgary to France, France to Seoul, Seoul to Japan, and then Japan, quick stop over in Vegas and back home. Well, I don't know if anybody else is getting extremely jealous and really wants to go traveling with you, but... uh... Maybe, maybe. I don't know. I'm always, I'm always open to joiners on my trips. Are you? Because, you know, like, I, I, I could carry a couple of bags. Yeah, man, you just show up and we'll have a good time. Okay, well, I'll show up next time and uh, I think your wife might be surprised. Anyways, give us a case for today's episode. All right, so you have a 25-year-old female presenting to the urgent care with two days of cough, purulent sputum, fever, and myalgias. Vital signs are within normal limits, and her exam is unremarkable. She asks for a prescription for antibiotics to help treat her infection. Well, inappropriate antibiotic use exposes patients to opportunistic infections and accelerates the development of antibiotic-resistant bacteria and leads to adverse drug events. Acute respiratory infections are a major cause of unnecessary antibiotic use. Emergency departments in the U.S. write 10 million antibiotic prescriptions each year, approximately half which are considered inappropriate. Given risks, strategies to reduce inappropriate antibiotic use in the ED and urgent care centers are needed. Yeah, and despite recognizing the need for antibiotic stewardship by emergency departments and emergency providers, this has not led to practice change. Providers in the ED and urgent care setting are faced with numerous challenges that may limit change, including frequent interruptions, boarding and overcrowding, frequent patient handoffs, and the need to see high volumes of patients. Well, there's evidence in both the medical literature and economic theory to support using packages of feedback, nudges, and peer comparisons to improve prescribing outcomes. This has been shown to reduce unnecessary antibiotic prescribing in primary care, and in one study of peer comparisons in outpatient clinics and doctor's offices, these improvements were sustained for at least three months after the intervention was completed. 
Yeah, this is a really interesting topic for me. I'm actually in the process of writing an audit and feedback paper right now with some other Canadian authors. Can't tell you too much because I guess it's not submitted and approved yet, but definitely one of my favorite areas of research. And Richard Thaler and Cass Sunstein wrote a book on the nudge theory. The book is called Nudge, Improving Decisions About Health, Wealth, and Happiness. The authors discuss psychologic and behavioral economics research to support active engineering of choice architecture. It's a great book to put on your reading list. Okay, Chris. Well, that's enough background material. How about you give us the clinical question? Is an enhanced intervention using audit and feedback, peer comparisons, and nudges more effective than a standard intervention in reducing inappropriate antibiotic prescribing for acute respiratory infections by clinicians in an emergency department or urgent care setting. And what's the reference? Yadav et al. A multifaceted intervention improves prescribing for acute respiratory infection for adults and children in emergency department and urgent care settings. Academic Emergency Medicine, July 2019. All right, let's run through the PICO. What was their population? The population was clinicians, so this included general emergency physicians, pediatric emergency physicians, advanced care practitioners, internists, and pediatricians at five emergency departments and four urgent care centers in three academic health systems who prescribed antibiotics for ARIs. And then they excluded resident physicians, so they weren't included in the population that was being looked at. What was the specific intervention that they were doing? They looked first at the enhanced intervention. This used all the elements of the adapted intervention, which is kind of more of a basic intervention, but also included peer comparison feedback via email, comparison to top performing peers, and additional locally tailored public posters demonstrating commitment to judicious antibiotic use. And what did they compare it to then? They compared it to the adapted intervention, which incorporated strategies from the Center for Disease Control's core elements for outpatient antibiotic stewardship, including provider and patient education, a physician champion, and departmental feedback. This used adapted brochures and other campaign messages for acute care providers. All right, let's run through their outcomes. They had a primary outcome. What was it? The rate of inappropriate outpatient antibiotic prescribing for acute respiratory infection diagnosis that were deemed antibiotic non-responsive. And their secondary outcome? The difference between the enhanced and adapted intervention groups in antibiotic prescribing. Well, this is the July episode of the SGEM Hot Off the Press, which means we have the lead author on the show, Dr. Kabir Yadav. Kabir is an associate professor and vice chair for academic affairs at Harbor UCLA Medical Center. Welcome to the SGEM, Kabir. Thanks, Ken and Chris. I'm a big fan of the podcast. As they say, I'm a longtime listener and first-time caller. Also, here is the senior author on this hot publication, Dr. Larissa May. Larissa is a professor of emergency medicine at the University of California, Davis, and directs the UC Davis Health Emergency Department and Outpatient Antibiotic Stewardship Program. So we have two of the authors today. Perhaps this will make up for the last SGM hop that we were not able to coordinate having any of the authors on the show for. Yeah, it was just a little bit difficult coordinating it last time for June, but we're doing pretty good because, you know, I'm up in Canada, and all three of you actually are in California right now. Welcome to the SGM, Larissa. Thanks for inviting me. I'm excited to join you on the show. Well, we always like to get the author's conclusions, so can you give us your conclusions to the paper? 
So implementation of antibiotic stewardship for acute respiratory infections is feasible and effective in the emergency department and urgent care setting. More intensive behavioral nudging methods were, however, not more effective in these high-performance settings. Okay, you two, we're just going to run through the quality checklist for randomized clinical trials and go through the key results, and then we're going to bring you back in for that nerdy section. So, Chris, let's just do that checklist first, get to the results, and then, you know what? I'm just so looking forward to the nerdy section, aren't you? Always love the nerdy section. That's why we're doing this, baby. Love talking nerdy. All right, so let's get through these questions. Are these ED patients? They are, but they also included patients who presented at an urgent care center. Did they adequately randomize them? They did. Did they conceal the randomization process? They did. Did they do an intention to treat analysis? Yes. Uh, The study physicians, or in this case clinicians, were they recruited consecutively? Yes, but physicians were allowed to opt out of the study. And the clinicians in both groups, were they similar with respect to prognostic factors? We're unsure about this. The enhanced group had four emergency departments and one urgent care center, while the adapted group had one emergency department and three urgent care centers. Like we said before, the study included eMERGE physicians, pediatric eMERGE physicians, internists, pediatricians, and advanced care practitioners. So these could potentially be unbalanced between sites, given some are EDs and others are urgent cares. No, they would be aware based on the personalized posters put up in the enhanced group. They did. It was. And number 10, we'll have to, you know, tweak this a bit, was were all physician or provider important outcomes? Poos, I guess, still. Were they considered? Still poos. Still poos, and they were. All right. And the last question, the treatment effect. Was it large enough and precise enough to be clinically significant? It was. All right, let's go through the results. They identified close to 45,000 acute respiratory infection visits to the emergency department or urgent care center among close to 300 clinicians across the nine sites. What was the key result? Both adaptive and enhanced interventions worked to reduce inappropriate antibiotic prescribing for viral acute respiratory illnesses. Yeah, for the primary outcome of inappropriate antibiotic prescribing for acute respiratory infections, it decreased from 6.2% down to 2.4%. And after adjusting for provider, seasonal, and institutional fixed effects, there was a significant year-over-year reduction from baseline to intervention period with an odds ratio of 0.67 with an absolute effect size of 0.7%. The baseline antibiotic prescribing rate for antibiotic inappropriate acute respiratory infections during the flu season was 4.3% across all sites. And it varied between as low as 2% up to the mid 7% depending on the site. How about for the secondary outcome? That was the difference between the enhanced intervention and the adaptive intervention for antibiotic prescribing. For this, there was a non-significant p-value of 0.06 difference in differences between the reduction in inappropriate antibiotic prescribing between the enhanced and adapted groups. All right, what we've all been waiting for, the 10 nerdy questions we have for Larissa and Kaber to help us better understand the study. Now, Chris and I are going to alternate. We're going to go back and forth. Either one of you can jump in. Both of you can jump in on these questions, but we'll start with a little methodology. And this first nerdy point is about cluster randomization. 
you selected a cluster randomized design for this trial, which can decrease the power and precision of the study. Why did you select this method of randomization? Why didn't you just randomize all the clinicians to an adaptive or an enhanced intervention? A key challenge to a practice change intervention is contamination, wherein individual providers randomized to different arms may influence each other in unpredictable ways. So to address this for this study, we chose to randomize each physically distinct study site to one study arm with the goal of minimizing providers in different study arms from influencing each other. So the second question is the lack of control group. So how can we really conclude this intervention resulted in a reduction in antibiotic prescribing without a control group where there was no intervention at all? Inappropriate antibiotic prescribing for ARIs could be going down because of external factors be beyond the adapted and enhanced intervention. So having lack of a contemporaneous control is certainly a valid concern. One of the challenges of doing this type of work you need to have uh, institutional engagement. And our participating institutions had outside incentives to rapidly deploy antibiotic stewardship. So it was impossible to get buy-in for participation to be a control site for the duration of the study. While we did look back at the prior year's data to look for seasonally adjusted trends, contemporaneous influences could not be easily accounted for. We could have designed a stepped wedge cluster randomized design such that each site gets the intervention in a prescribed order and sites not yet receiving the intervention act as contemporaneous controls. This is the design we are actually using for uh, subsequent studies that are currently underway. Well, let's focus in on that, that issue of sites because one of the things when I was reading through this popped up in my head is, are you researching, are you looking into, are you studying the wrong sites? I mean, your sites perform extremely well at baseline for low, inappropriate prescribing rates. I mean, single digits, somewhere around 5%. I mean, when we were talking in the background material, we were saying somewhere around 50% of antibiotics are considered inappropriately prescribed. Should you have looked at other maybe community hospitals or other urgent care centers that weren't associated with academic centers? So this was certainly surprising to us as well. According to the National Quality Forum Acute Bronchitis Quality Metric uh, that was used for pay for performance at two of the participating sites, inappropriate prescribing was in the 60 to 70% range, justifying a need for antibiotic stewardship. It turns out that it might be the metric we used, which we believe is closer to the true rate of inappropriate prescribing, so a very conservative approach, may be driving it down. We did note the pediatric sites were low prescribers overall, and that the adult urgent care site in LA County did start much higher, which is consistent with national data by specialty. National data from Children's Hospital Emergency Departments also suggests a very low baseline rate of prescribing at 2.5%. You certainly make a good point, and impact may well be better felt in community adult sites with baseline higher levels of prescribing. And we have several follow-up studies underway with community partners to see if this is true. The next question is about the Hawthorne effect. So this study is at significant risk of both a Hawthorne effect and altered coding of discharge diagnoses. For example, you could say more pneumonias as your discharge diagnosis rather than acute respiratory infections and then give those patients antibiotics. So how can this risk be mitigated? So insofar as the Hawthorne effect is considered to be the unintended self-corrective behavior of participants when they're, no, they're being observed as part of a research study, one could actually argue that the Hawthorne effect for 
practice intervention is actually part of any antibiotic stewardship intervention. I think the real question for, the, for this type of observation effect or being observed effect is that such an effect might not be sustainable, especially when providers are getting a new quality measure every week that they're supposed to be paying attention to. As to the consideration for altered coding of discharge diagnosis or diagnostic code shifting or diagnostic drift, we didn't look at it across all the sites, but we did look at it at a couple sites in LA County, and there wasn't a change in diagnostic coding from before the intervention to after the intervention. But we will be looking into this more closely. Well, that naturally leads into question number five, and this is about coding, the ICD-10 coding. Has this method been validated to be accurate when identifying antibiotic non-responsive acute respiratory infections? We could sort of answer this in a short way, which is no. Uh, but I will say that we adapted a previously published outcome measure that was used in the Meek et al. study that was done in primary care settings to the emergency department urgent care setting. That schema was based on ICD-9 codes, as was the National Quality Form Acute Bronchitis Metric that is being used for pay-for performance. Other studies, such as by Gerber et al., have used their own codes for an outcome. Our outcome was a crosswalk of the Meeker outcome through a complete review of the ICD-10 codebook, which was extremely painful, I must say, and required consensus of all of us physician investigators and also underwent review by the CDC. However, we didn't perform rigorous validation with adjudication, and certainly comparing different outcome measures would be a follow-up project. Our measure is publicly available on the Mitigate Toolkit for people to review and refine if they feel it's necessary. While it may not be perfect, we do believe it is a conservative outcome of inappropriate prescribing that would be acceptable to providers receiving feedback. As such, it might not compare to other measures, such as choosing wisely, that may show higher rates as they include things that could potentially be appropriate to treat with antibiotics, like acute sinusitis. There are obviously limitations of ICD-10 codes, as they are only as good as what is documented in the medical record. Very cool. So the next question is about contamination again. So some clinicians worked at multiple sites, but were assigned to the intervention of the site where they spent at least 80% of their time. This threshold was lowered to greater than 50% at the six CHCO sites. Would this not contaminate the results and make them more difficult to interpret? So unlike the participating adult and mixed population sites, which had almost no crossover, the Children's Hospital of Colorado sites often had providers that worked at more than one site, uh, which is why we had to lower the rate uh, in order to identify assignment to a given site. That potentially does explain both the downward trend overall and potentially smaller effect sizes at the CHCO sites. However, as noted before regarding national trends, the pediatric-only sites had lower prescribing from the outset. But the potential for contamination is well taken, and to address it, a subgroup analysis simulating bounds of contamination effects could be undertaken in a second manuscript consolidating a battery of post-hoc hypothesis-generating subgroup analyses. So let's move on from contamination to the variety of clinicians. You did have a variety of clinicians providing care, and this included general emergency medicine physicians, pediatric emergency medicine physicians, advanced care practitioners, internists, and pediatricians. Did you perform any subgroup analyses of these for hypothesis-generating purposes? As noted above, we are considering a number of secondary analyses in a post hoc manner for exploratory purposes. Unfortunately, we are limited in the ability to analyze individual provider type in this study as we were prohibited from collecting provider demographic data by the IRB. 
We do, however, intend to analyze the performance of sites when subgrouped by type of site. Moreover, follow-up studies at other clinical settings will collect demographic data, so hopefully this question can be answered with those studies. And speaking of demographics, the IRB didn't allow you to collect demographics on the clinicians. Were you interested in whether or not the different interventions were more or less effective based on gender, age, or years of practice? Absolutely. Prior studies in knowledge translation have suggested that there may be differences in uptake of new evidence based on demographic differences. Initially, this was more focused on age and years of practice, but now a more critical eye has been put toward gender differences. We do intend to explore these differences in follow-up studies where we will have collected demographic data, uh, including clinician type and years of practice. Well, now I want to talk about the nudge. And you gave some feedback nudge. And I'm wondering, how positive was that nudge when you said top performers versus not top performers? It seemed like your email just said, you're not a top performer. Would a more encouraging message be more helpful? What about listing the top performers at each site? And I'm wondering, could the opposite effect where the person would take pride in, hey, you know what? I was at the bottom. I was the worst of the worst. Sort of like Bart Simpson, underachiever and proud of it, man. <laughs> well, I sort of felt the same way as you. We did just take uh, what the Meeker et al. study had done. And really, our co-author, Jason Doctor, who's an expert in cognitive psychology, suggests that the worst reaction to feedback is indifference. So to quote him loosely, upsetting and motivating are not mutually exclusive. So the wording that we used was meant to challenge their self-image as a top performer and immediately follow up with how they could improve. So we did give them their data in that email as well. We also developed FAQs that were meant to be transparent and objective about how we determine the outcome and what was needed to be a top performer. It's important to note that everyone could become a top performer. So it turns out that antibiotic prescribing is not necessarily rational, much to our chagrin, but it is a significant social one, exemplifying the role of the doctor in the doctor-patient relationship. So there are all kinds of psychosocial issues that feedback can bring up about being a physician or being a clinician. I do admit that there were one or two rotten tomatoes that were hurled at me, but overall there was little pushback and hurt feelings and mostly humorous responses. That's really good to hear. Um, so you guys have gotten through the first nine nerdy questions. Great. And so the, for the final question, it's what's the right amount? Is getting to zero inappropriate antibiotic use a realistic goal? Would we not be at risk of causing more harm at that point by misprescriptions in serious bacterial illnesses that should get an antibiotic? We are not perfect diagnosticians. So what is the right amount of inappropriate antibiotic prescribing? So I think the short answer to this is yes, assuming the metric is true and coding is correct. Many of our physicians did have rates of zero. So it may be more possible to get to zero for some conditions, such as nonspecific URI and acute bronchitis versus pharyngitis, where the outcome specification might not be able to parse out the viral from the bacterial. And the CDC has actually done some work that I was part of looking at recommendations for what percent reduction they should have in antibiotic use. And for things like acute bronchitis, where there really is no good evidence that uh, treatment leads to any benefit and may actually lead to harm. You know, in those cases, uh, for acute bronchitis and nonspecific URI, we should be getting pretty much to zero, assuming we're coding correctly. I think the great thing about this work, even though we weren't able to show that there was a difference between the two types of interventions in these low-performance settings, 
is that we can, as a nation, get to lower antibiotic prescribing and to near zero for these. So I think it's also demonstrating that it is possible, and it will be really interesting to see what happens in the community studies that we're doing. In terms of causing patient harm by avoiding antibiotics in these patients, we know from meta-analyses that you have to treat 4,000 patients with nonspecific upper respiratory infection to prevent one pneumonia. And yet, you only need to treat between 4 and 20 patients to cause an adverse event. So some food for thought. Well, congratulations. You survived our 10 nerdy questions. We'd like to give you one opportunity here at the end as an open-ended sort of thing. Is there anything else that you want to say about your hot-off-the-press publication? Yeah, uh, so this project was guided by implementation science, and I think it's a, a good introduction to the use of implementation science, particularly for those of us in emergency medicine. So implementation science is a rigorous, theory-driven approach to practice improvement. It relies on careful deliberation of the local conditions when preparing for an intervention, which may actually modify the intervention that is uh, performed. It's followed by a mixed methods approach to conducting the intervention, and then it measures several outcomes related to the implementation processes. So not simply looking at whether the intervention led to a desired outcome, but how the intervention was actually um, successfully performed. I think it holds great promise for elevating local quality improvement projects to interventions worthy of knowledge translation. Chris Carpenter, who the SGEM listeners may be familiar with, is a national expert on implementation science and has helped lead several initiatives on both the conduct and reporting of implementation science projects. I would suggest that they look them up if they want to learn more about implementation science. All right, well, I have one more thing I'd like to say. Your study was featured on the Skeptic's Guide to the Universe podcast, episode number 278. In that SGU episode, they used your publication in their science or fiction section. And there was one thing that bothered me when they represented that your intervention decreased inappropriate antibiotic prescribing by over 30%. And this information seems to have come from a press release. Now, there was an odds ratio of 0.67 from baseline, but the absolute effect size in reduction was just 0.7%. So I found the press release claiming that the intervention reduced the overuse of antibiotics by one-third misleading. And I was wondering if you could comment on that. So we absolutely agree with you that absolute effects, rather than relative effects, are the preferred way to report scientific findings. It's, however, challenging to make scientific findings accessible and interesting to the general public. University media relations and the press in general aim to draw the reader to click on the article. But the impact of science shouldn't be guided by a press release or tweet or even this podcast. On a related note, there have been recent articles written about press releases on the use of vitamin C for sepsis. Bottom line, you should be skeptical of press releases and always go to the original study. Oh, I can't argue with anything that you said there. Absolutely. Go back and read the primary literature yourself and always be skeptical. Don't just fall for the clickbait. Okay, well, thanks, guys. Uh, now we're going to comment on the author's conclusions and compare them to the SGEM's conclusions. Yeah, we agree that implementation of strategies to reduce inappropriate antibiotic prescribing for ARIs is feasible and likely effective. And Chris, give us a bottom line. Consider implementing strategies to reduce inappropriate antibiotic prescribing in your eMERGE and urgent care centers. And a case resolution? 
After completing your history and physical examination, you conclude that this patient has a viral illness and do not prescribe an antibiotic. And how are you going to apply this clinically then? This study provides strategies that could be tried to reduce unnecessary antibiotics for acute respiratory infections in the emergency department and urgent care. And what are you going to tell the patient? I would tell the patient that your history, reassuring vital signs, and examination do not show any evidence of an infection requiring antibiotics. If anything, these antibiotics may lead to harm, such as diarrhea, stomach upset, rashes, and even nasty intestinal infections. At this point, you are likely to improve with fluids, rest, and ibuprofen or acetaminophen for your fever and muscle aches. If you are developing significantly worsening shortness of breath or your fever is persistent after another few days, you should be reassessed. It's time to announce the Keener Contest, and there were multiple winners last episode when I presented with the EM Swami live at the New York ASAP meeting. Omidacycline belongs to the tetracycline class of antibiotic drugs, and I gave out a bunch of cool skeptical prizes to those who were in attendance at the New York ASAP meeting. Kabir, I understand you have the Keener question this week. Sure do. Name the physician and the medical school that they'd graduated from who said, one of the first duties of the physician is to educate the masses not to take medicine. Oh, great question, Kabir. All right, if you know the answer, then send me an email and put Keener in the subject line. My email address is thesgem at gmail.com. The first correct answer will receive one of those sought-after cool skeptical prizes. Now it's your turn, SGMers. What do you think of this episode on antibiotic stewardship for acute respiratory infections? Tweet your comments using the hashtag SGMHOP. What questions do you have for Larissa and Kabir and their team? Ask them on the SGM blog. The best social media feedback will be published in Academic Emergency Medicine. And also don't forget, those who subscribe to AEM can head over to the AEM homepage and get credit. Yeah, not Bitcoin, CME credit for this podcast and article. And we'll put the process in the SGEM blog show notes. Thank you very much, Larissa and Kabir, for coming on the SGEM and talking about your hot off the press publication. You're very welcome. We enjoyed it. Yeah, thank you. Well, have a great summer, Chris, and don't travel anywhere else. I will try my best to stay in one place. <laughs> and to finish off the show, Kabir and Larissa, do you think you can, in stereo, give us the SGEM tagline on the count of three? One. Two, three. Remember, Remember to be, be skeptical, skeptical of anything, anything you learn, learn, even if you heard it on the Skeptic's Guide to Emergency Medicine. Talk to everyone next time. Don't stop